This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for the courageous discussion of difficult stories. Tonight is part of an ongoing series on suicide, and my guest is Patricia Ellen. Patricia is the Outreach Director of the Center for Grieving Children right here in Portland. She works, and the center works with families going through loss of all kinds. Patricia herself also teaches a course here at USM on depression and suicide in adolescence. Patricia is an interfaith minister. She happens to also be the co-founder of the Odds and Ends Clown Troop, which volunteers at the Barbara Bush Hospital here at Maine Med. Patricia is the mother of two, a 40-year-old daughter, and a son who died by suicide 23 years ago, whose name is Doug. And um, we're going to be talking about all of what that was. Thank you so much for being my guest, Patricia. Glad to be here. I feel like you've um, survived probably what is every parent's ultimate worst nightmare, and I, I really just want to start by honoring your courage and coming to tell us your story. Thank you. So let's begin there. Um, what, what is the story of what happened with Doug? Um, Doug was 14. It was September. He had just started in high school. And um, I came home from a date one night, and uh, the man I was with went outdoors to let his dog out and came back in and said, don't go out on the porch. And I said, what? And um, I went out on the porch, of course. And Doug was out there, and he had shot himself. Uh, with a rifle I had let him buy just a couple weeks earlier. Um, I had told him he could have the rifle as long as he took a hunter safety course because I wanted him to be safe. And I had he had, had been good with guns before, and so this was totally unexpected. And, you know, I just, hindsight, I never would have done it if I had the, the choice. Um, Doug actually lived for three weeks. He was in the hospital, so um, we did have a chance to be with him. He did, didn't die from his gunshot wound. Um, be with him after after the uh, after he had shot himself, and um, he was aphasic. He, the, it had affected his brain, and so he couldn't speak, but he could interact with us in other ways. So we did get to communicate with him some, but not talk about what happened. The hospital encouraged us not to talk about what happened saying he probably wouldn't remember and we'd have lots of time. And unfortunately, the lots of time part, they were wrong about. Um, he died from a blood clot um, that went to his heart shortly after I left the house, the hospital three weeks later. So that's kind of, um, that's our journey. We lost him, thought we saved him, and lost him again. So there's so much about the story I want to I wanna ask you about. Um, uh, maybe we'll start at the beginning with where where it is. So he um, asked you to buy a rifle a couple of weeks before. Mm-hmm. And what did he tell you he wanted to he buy? He wanted to go hunting, and he had some people he was going to go hunting with, and he also wanted it for target shooting. And um, and at the time, did you have any, like, creepy feeling, no. like, I don't feel good about this? No, in fact, he was it, was, it was a strange thing because he seemed to be happier than he'd been. Um, he was happy about starting school. He was. He had some friends. He'd had a job. Um, seemed pretty settled. So not not an inkling that he would do anything to harm himself with it. And so when you say he was happier than he had been, did you feel like he'd been depressed or unhappy before? I, I don't know. Not de- I, I not depressed or unhappy, but he had um, he was quieter and he seemed to be more excited about school. 
Um, he had worn black a lot early on, and I always wondered about that. I even asked him about it, and he said, oh, no, it just makes me feel strong. And going starting school as a freshman, he'd bought different color clothes and was dressing differently and had a couple new friends. So um, there weren't signs, you know, the signs of depression or um, that kind of thing. We weren't seeing that. Um, so you were just utterly shocked. It to- yeah, totally. It's like... You know, at the moment, it was like, how could this have happened? Hindsight, I look back, and he had told me six months earlier, maybe even longer than that, um, we talked one day, and he'd been to an Al-Anon meeting, and he talked about, uh, they talked about suicide, and did anybody ever try it before? And he said one time he was, he thought about it, but I had come home, and he didn't do it, and I said, do you think about it now? And he said, no, and I said, you know, if you ever, if that ever feels like something you want to be considering, please tell me, you know, just let me know. But he never mentioned it again, ever. So that probably, hindsight was something, knowing what I know now, I might have done something different then. Like what? I don't know whether I would have tried to get him into therapy or would have tried to talk to him more. Um, you know, at the time it seemed like, the people, whoever was leading that Al-Anon group hadn't been concerned enough to call me. And, you know, he seemed to be very clear that he wasn't suicidal and wasn't thinking of hurting himself. So when he said he had thought of it before, did he tell you what the context was that he'd thought about it before? You mean the why or the how? Or the... I guess the why. No, he didn't. Uh-huh. He didn't. And I, I don't, I still don't know. And again, I knew so little then, you know. Right. I mean, you've come uh, 23 years. Yeah. Yeah. You've so so much. You've thought so much yeah. about this. Yes. So, um, so you thought in a way it was a reassuring conversation because he right. said, "I'm not thinking about that right. now." He's not. Yeah, yeah. I think so. The other clue we got was in a suicide note where he said um, he would say hello to his grandfather who had died in February, and his best friend's dad who had died in August. And now knowing what I know, working for the Center for Grieving Children. I think there were a lot more feelings around that, uh, around those losses, um, than, um, than I knew. And the Center for Grieving Children didn't exist then. My fantasy's always been if it had and we'd gotten there, we had, it might have had a different outcome. So these were people that he was really very close very to. Very close to, yeah. Uh-huh, and that he, he imagined that he would get to be with them. I think get to be with them, and I think probably maybe it's just some despondency over their deaths. I don't know. Mm. Um, so I want to just kind of come back then. So here you are. You're not expecting this. Is You're not even worried about him. In fact, you're feeling really hopeful about him. Right. right. Everything seems to be going so well. Well, yeah. I mean, hopefully, you know, like, there's all this promise. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yes. the, other, the other things, you know, as you do this kind of, when you have a suicide, you look at, well, what, where were the signs? What did I miss? Of course. And, you know, two days earlier, he was talking about when he got his driver's license, um, the night before, he was talking to me about his plans for uh, joining Marines ROTC when he got to be a senior. So he was definitely talking about the future and not about hard stuff. Right. So you find him on the porch. He's still alive. You get him to medical help. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, you get the advice that you should not talk to him about it. And Tell me about that, how you felt about it then, how you feel about that now. Um, I mean, I, it, it, then it felt like, again, he was still recovering and he couldn't talk to us. He could just point with the board. So 
that felt okay to, to not bring it up. Probably I didn't know how to bring it up even so, and I trusted the medical professionals. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it, I don't, it wouldn't have made a difference anyhow. You know, right. I, I think the important thing is that he knew in those three weeks that we loved him. I mean, we were all there. We were all supporting him. Um, the school, actually, the kids made a tape that they sent in um, telling, saying how much they hoped he would get better and, and so on. Um, so I think he got to know that part. So you got to give him that love yeah. before he died. Yeah. yeah. I'm so glad. Oh, I know it's a blessing that most families don't get them. They have a suicide loss. So that, did you feel, you know, in retrospect, that that helped you kind of, you live after he had died? Um, probably right in, immediately after, no. <laughs> it was like, it was a real struggle to want to stay alive after he died. I, I think bet. that's that's something a lot of parents struggle with. And and I think the saving grace is my daughter. That there's, I was never going to do anything to cause her that much harm. You know, I wouldn't put her through that again. But, but there's certainly the pain is so great. You really wonder if you can endure it. Yes. So it was. It was no comfort to you. Really. It was, there was I, nothing. Maybe it, in was... time later. You know, as, as we went on, the, the moments were were comfort, or some of the moments that we shared was some comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you find yourself angry with the doctors that they had promised you a future that you didn't get to have? No, because they they no. I that was that was like so not down the line. I was I, the, one of the places was I would go home at night and I was angry at Doug for not telling us what he was feeling. And um, yeah, tell me more about that. I had um, it was I would go home at night. He had a punching bag in the basement and um, I'd go home and slam the punching bag for about 20 minutes and tell him, why didn't you talk to me? Why didn't you talk to me? Why didn't you let us know what was going on? We could have helped. And that was enough. Once I got that out, that I could go into the tears, which was really the the stronger feeling. Mm-hmm. So. Right. And so. Was that what you would do? You'd first express the anger, and then you'd cry at night? Yeah. And then yeah. you'd go back to the hospital? Well, oh, this, I, is after this is after, after, he, after died. he died. Yeah. No, just when he was in the hospital, it was being there with him as much as I could. Continuing to... The, the other advice we got was measure, take a measured pace being at the hospital because you're going to have to pace yourself for a long time. And so I would also go off to work part of the time, part of the day. Um, right. You were, you were in it for the long haul. We were in it for the long haul, and there wasn't a long haul. Mm. Oh. Yeah, I feel such sadness for you mm. thinking about that. Mm. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, because I think it's a legacy of suicide for almost anyone who loves someone who dies that way, is kind of the, the complication of different feelings all at the same time. And mm. you've named anger and tears. Mm. Um, you know, the one that comes to mind often, I think, is the feeling of guilt or all the what ifs and if onlys mm-hmm. and um tell me about that for you about how, how i imagine that was an enormous struggle it's 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 an enormous piece yeah i think as a mother you always believe you're going to keep your child safe and that that's your job and that's your role so the guilt that i didn't see something that i didn't keep him safe um guilt that i was out on a date and not home um you know, wondering, had he been in counseling, would it have made a difference? You know, all of those things. And um, that was a struggle. That's, you know, that's the weight thing that weighs you down. And the kind of, if only I'd done this, if only I'd done that, um, would we have had a different outcome? And 
that's just that's a long process. People say, "Well, you can't do that. You can't second guess yourself." But you can't not. Right. You can't. You, you know, it's as part of the you, process. As if you could not do that. Yeah. yeah. And so you know, it, I know it's been twenty three years. Um, do you still do it? No. No. So how did that happen? I think think a lot. One is I hear so many stories. So the if only he was in therapy. And then I heard a story of a family that lost their child right after he left his therapist's office, you know, or the if only I'd been home. And I hear a story of a family that loses their child when he's home with them and just goes upstairs and, and dies. So what I'm realizing is there's a lot of things you can't do. You can do a lot of things to try to keep your child safe. Like I wouldn't have guns in my house. I wouldn't, I'd recommend to anybody not to have guns in their house. That's just too easy a way. Um, but there's, there's no, there's no surefire thing. You can just do your best. And do you feel like there was a, so the, the hearing other people's stories made a difference. Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear more about sort of almost like the milestones of your recovery. Um, you know, what were, what were the turning points for you in, in recovering from this and, and what helped that happen? Um, a lot of, a lot of things. One was, uh, the minister of the church I belong to said to me the day Doug died, it will be at least five years before you begin to feel like yourself again. That was a turning point, surprisingly, because it gave me permission there wasn't something wrong with me, that I was still struggling. That was one. What a gift. What a gift, yeah. I had, I was part of two spiritual communities that held me in prayer, and it really made a difference. I could feel after, I felt like I was in a cocoon for a year as I walked through that. A big part of my healing was, um, one weekend when, when I didn't have anything to do, I went to a workshop called Integrating Body, Mind, and Spirit, because I was falling apart at that time. And it was a, a, workshop for the Rubenfeld Synergy Method, a body-mind kind of psychotherapy. And um, when I asked Alana, who was doing the workshop, you know, she said, everybody can be happy. And I said, what if you can't feel happy, which I wasn't able to. And she did a demonstration session with me of the method. And I felt like I did four months worth of therapy um, in that time. And one of the big pieces was um, the realization that I was only part of the whole picture, that there was a lot of pieces that led up to Doug um, dying from suicide. It wasn't all on you. It wasn't all on me. Mm -hmm. And I could wish that some things had been different, but um, there were a lot of things. You know, he'd been there'd been a fight at school that day, I found out. Um, when he was in the hospital, somebody had talked to him, and he'd written on, his, on a piece of paper, terror recess. And later I found out in the story that there'd been a fight at school that he was in with somebody else, and that there was a group of kids surrounding them cheering for the other kid. Um, so that may have been the precipitating factor. Um, there must have been other things going on as well. It was around the 10th anniversary of when his dad and I separated. And now working at the center, I know how powerful anniversary times are. Um, I also am aware of how powerful starting freshman year in school, high school is, that that's another really vulnerable time for kids. Say a little bit more about that. There's a, you know, it's all, we, we in the culture highlight, you know, that like, oh, I'm in high school now, how exciting. And what we don't always acknowledge is the difficulty of transitioning into a new community, into finding your place, into being the, 
the new kid on the block and so on. So there's a lot that goes on in both in the high school transition and the college transition, that first year that makes makes it a more vulnerable time for kids. I mean, he's using the word terror. And if I imagine being surrounded by a group of kids cheering on someone who's trying to pound me, yeah, boy, it really does feel terrifying, especially if these are all the kids I have to sit in school with and walk down the halls yeah. with every day. Yeah. Um, it feels like such a, an indictment in a way of school mm-hmm. violence and how yeah. powerful the impact on kids is. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm hearing, you know, that you were held in a community, a spiritual community. You were given permission to take as long as you wanted to yeah. be devastated, uh, that you, um, learned that you weren't, it wasn't all on you, that you were part of a much larger story and that other people's stories sustained you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad for each piece. Is there anything else? Is that I think that? you know I I've worked at the center for ten years and done outreaches and talked to families about suicide and studied suicide and you know just beginning to see, um, for me it, it's learning the struggle that people go through to get to that point, the the pain that's there, and I guess what helps me is know that I'm I'm doing some things to talk to people about talking about the pain, not hiding it. Listening for the pain, talk. I get to talk say it to high schoolers. You know, being a good friend. This is one time you don't keep a secret. If somebody says to you, "I'm feeling like I don't want to live anymore," or "I'm feeling like I want to hurt myself," but don't tell anybody. Being a good friend means you tell. And so I feel like, you know, part of mine is is I couldn't save Doug, but maybe I can be talking to people and and help somebody else. I find that so moving, you know, um, I think in some ways my hope for this show is that it creates a space for people to talk about in a way their greatest wound and, Mm. and to offer it for other people's benefit. And I feel like you are so doing that. Mm, It's really, it's really very moving. Um, the last piece I want to ask about your personal experience before we talk a little bit more about, you know, adolescent suicide in general is, is about shame and about what it's like for you to tell people, because I can I can imagine you know feeling like you know imagining what other people how they might be judging you and how how have you worked with that inside yourself? Um, I, I learned to tolerate it so, um, and also have compassion for myself. I mean, I, I, often when I do an outreach, I will tell the story that um, that I lost my son to suicide, and. Um, I do that in a number of ways. One is, is if I can be vulnerable, that will help other people be vulnerable. And I, when I do outreaches, I think that makes a big difference if people can share their stories. But I always do it with wondering, well, are people going to think less of me as a parent that my son died from suicide? And I think the thing that helps the most is I have met at the center so many wonderful families that have lost somebody to suicide that it's really made me given me permission to let go of the judgment that there's sometimes there's just an unknown factor. Right. It doesn't have to be a reflection on you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And occasionally when I first tell the story, there's still that little twinge of wondering, but, but it's mostly gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space. And we're talking about suicide. My guest is Patricia Ellen talking about uh, her son Doug and his death, um, 
and her recovery in that process. I want to shift now to, you know, you teach about adolescent suicide and, um, you know, if you had to, if you had to say what you're, what you think is the most effective prevention or what you really hope that people can learn from this conversation about suicide and adolescence, what would that be? I think the one thing I mentioned already is, is that, um, friends don't keep secrets. Uh, I, the, I think the other thing that the meaning of my work at the center is a lot of what we do is helping kids find safe ways to express feelings. And I think one of the things that, that I learned more and more about suicide is that sometimes it's this unrelenting pain that feels like there's no, no way out of that. It's really somebody doesn't want to die. They just want to stop hurting and finding people knowing that there are people who can help, can sit through the emotions with you, be present, I think is, is one of the biggest things that helps. So for parents to know that, um, for for kids to know, to, to seek out somebody who can be a support person. And I think part of what we as a culture need to do is to um, find ways to lessen the shame of somebody being in pain and needing help and making it okay to, to reach out. Um, that feels huge to me. And what are your ideas about how to do that? Because that, fe- that feels so important. Well, I think, you know, um, I think one of the things is we model it as adults, as we talk about our own struggles and our own need to reach out. And, and is, if we're adults that people respect and look up to, we are indirectly giving permission for people to do that. Um, right, so it's bearing our own pain without shame. Yeah. Yeah, and it's telling our stories. There's a, a family that's been pretty public uh, that lost their son to suicide, and they have been very public about talking about his journey through depression and trying to get medication and how we need to recognize that depression is something that affects people and get them help and, again, take the stigma away from depression. Um, so, again, it's it's people being brave enough to tell their stories. Yes, and while we're talking about telling stories, you have a very interesting point I know about language, and I wondered if you could tell me what your feeling is yeah. about how we talk about yeah. suicide. I think it's one of the th- one of the ways of lessening shame and letting people feel free to say, you know what, I'm hurting so much, I wish I could find a way to end my life, to make it stop, is is that we need to lessen the shame around suicide. Not that it's a, not that it's something an act to choose, but but that that we decriminalize it. Very often people will say somebody committed suicide. And if you think about the, what commit means, commit either means committing somebody to a mental institution or commit very often means a crime. And both of those, and that, that's actually the way people looked at suicide for a long time. And in fact, suicide is, people who die from suicide die from an illness just like people die from cancer. So we need to start languaging differently. We, somebody dies from suicide. Um, somebody dies from depression, that's um, different than it's not a crime and it's somebody's not crazy. Sometimes life gets really hard and sometimes we're in pain and and it should be okay to reach out for help, just like it'd be okay to reach out to a doctor if I broke my leg. I often tell people that depression is a life-threatening illness. It is. It is. As you as you know too, too well. Yeah. I want to ask you also about um, about your daughter and about how how old was your daughter at the time? My daughter was eighteen. She just graduated from high school. So and so it was in September. So had she already 
gone or has she moved out? She had, she was, she was still living at home. Well, she was still living at home. She had graduated. She decided to take a year off before going to college. Um, and she was working at the same place Doug was working. So she was used to being with him all day. Yeah. Yeah. And so how, tell me a little bit about how the two of you stayed together through this when you were both suffering such yeah. a great and a different loss. We were, it was, we had very different ways of grieving was, was the one thing and great respect for each other's ways of grieving. Um, she actually ended up not living with me after he died. She, um, house, house sat with two friends. Um, and I was, you know, I was in, in a house, the house by myself and she had, what happened for her is after Doug died, she pro- she stayed home with those two friends and did needlepoint and watched TV for probably three months. She really didn't do anything. And then at the end of that time, she got up and she started, she went to work and she started doing her life. That's what she needed to do to heal. And myself, I was in such pain. I stayed out of work for a few weeks, but then I had to go back to work because I needed something I couldn't sit with that pain unrelenting all day. I, I wouldn't have made it. So, but I think what we had and what we had going into that was a mutual respect that, um, that, that we each honored each other's process. And you mentioned earlier, you know, that part of what keeps you from wanting to die yourself is knowing that you have to, you need to mother her. You need I to need be to there. Mother her. And yeah. How, how, um, was that? I mean, did you feel able to mother her? Um, I was some. The first couple of weeks, I couldn't. The first night, I couldn't. And I remember talking to her about something that happened that first night. And um, and she said, Mom, I don't remember the first two weeks. I don't remember anything. So that's how much in shock she was. I think we mothered each other through it. There's a, When you lose somebody to suicide, there's a hypervigilance that you go into that you kind of always are checking on each other. And now even 23 years later, we still do that. You know, it's like, call me as soon as you get off the plane or, you know, all of those kinds of things. Right. Your awareness of how precious you are to each other. How precious you are and how suddenly life can change so suddenly and unexpectedly. So fragile. Yeah. Yes. Um, So I want to ask you, I know that you said that you were considering even starting a group for parents. And um, do you think that might happen? At the, we're, at the center right now is looking at um, the possibility of starting a suicide survivors group, and we're, we're doing some exploration with other organizations in the area and see what kind of collaboration we can build. Uh, as with everything else, it's what we really need to do is find the right resources to be able to do it. But right. um, although a lot of families come to the center who have had a suicide loss, we're also, we also know that sometimes... Um, Additionally, to be in a group that's just for suicide survivors really serves them well. That makes so much sense yeah. because there seems to be all these other layers um, that go with it that feel so important. Uh, Patricia, I, we're going to have to stop in a minute, but I want to ask you about other resources for people. Um, before that group gets started, the Center for Grieving Children, sure. hoping it does, what are resources that you found to be particular um, helpful? One book, How I Stayed Alive When My Mind Was Trying to Kill Me by Sue Blauner has lots of good techniques for people who want um, who wanted their mind to shift their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, a website called save.org has wonderful resources for people and one on how to tell children about suicide, which is important to help young children understand what happened. 
Save.org has information on how to talk to children how about suicide. How to talk to children about suicide. Okay. You also recommended a book by Edward Schneidman called The Suicidal Mind would be a great one for therapists, really to understand what's going on for somebody and how to intervene. Wonderful. I want to just say, if you're listening to the show tonight and you know someone that you're worried about, or if you yourself are having thoughts about not being alive, there is a local hotline that's available 24 hours a day, and that phone number is 774-4357. Again, that's 774-4357. Patricia Allen, it's been so wonderful to talk to you. Um, You're really an inspiration to me. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you for what you're doing. So this is Dr. Ann at WMPG. This has been Safe Space. Patricia Allen uh, works at the Center for Grieving Children as their outreach director, but also teaches a course here at USM on depression and suicide in adolescence. Um, next week, I will be interviewing someone from Roberta Hertig from the Samaritans. And um, coming up next is Money Talks with Allison. <laughs>